and you brought us to that second record, something to love in '77. Back in yeah. love, I mean, as soon, that was one of those tracks that I mean, as soon as I heard it instantly, I knew that was a hit. Um, it's got such a, a hook to it that I just knew it was it was going to be a big hit. Um, I was just getting into DJing myself at that time, and and so I was developing that ear. It's like this is going to definitely get the dance floor going. Well, get, get with you about back in love again, and uh, you know you might. <laughs> but at any rate, um, when we first heard back in love again, Bobby just smacked went crazy about the song. Well, we didn't quite have that same feeling. I mean, being the type of musicians that we were, we were trying to be just case we could be, and it was like, well, I'm just going to be, it was one of the countryest things I'd ever heard before, and I did not like it, but it turned out to be one of the biggest hits we had, and of course, eventually, I learned to like it. <laughs> That's funny. And, uh, it, yeah, I, it is. I'd like to add one point about Back in Love. I think it had such strong ingredients that it could not be denied, even by us who was denying it at first. Uh, when you listen, you're a musicologist, so you would know about the whole movement of music from Africa to the West and, uh, and coming through the Caribbean and, and you get the, the, the Afro-Cuban stuff. So they're all influenced by Africa and then the Spanish stuff. Well, Back in Love had that basic habanera beat, you know, which the Charleston came from. Doom, 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 doom. Doom, doom, doom. That was the basic thing. So you, you really can't deny that. And once you put a backbeat and you swing lyrics and, and, it, and, and the, uh, just the way the rhythm section was swinging around that. And it's really not an easy song to play because it has to be played with the correct feel. Uh, it's yes. as simple as it is. And, uh, so it's just one of those things that can't be denied when it's done correctly. And we started, and once we had Big Mel. <laughs> <laughs> put his big foot up, yeah. on it in the studio it was all over and then when people would just hear it right from the first bar it was all over so you could see how infectious the um ingredients were in back in love yeah but it's so interesting to hear your guys perspective on that um because i found with a lot of uh, the bands you know some of their biggest hits um, they weren't necessarily that keen on, you know, it's just That's true. funny uh, <laughs> how that works out. Um, but this record also kind of followed the predecessor with that opening very, uh, you know, orchestral thematic song with uh, Age of the Showdown. Age of the Showdown, yeah, um, very programmatic. Yeah, yeah, and it really set the tone. And um, now, after what you said about Back in Love, I'm, I don't know how you feel about this, uh, but, you know, I was telling uh, John before we went on air, or I think I actually mentioned at the outset, the house party scene at that time, I, I was very much part of that. And We Party Hardy was a song that, I mean, really, <laughs> really got it going. Um, it, it was, it got all the wallflowers up. So um, I think that was it's probably... Still I, I would say, for me, that's probably one of the funkiest songs that LTD did. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Oh, we agree with you totally. And that's why we open up every show with that one pretty much. I'd say 75% of our shows, even to today, opens up with uh, Party Hardy. Because we're, we're bringing people into the party. We want them to know right away this is a party. And, uh, again, it's got that kind of habanero. Henry wrote the song, Henry Davis, the bass player, 
and Henry was infatuated with Caribbean music and Latin music. So if you listen, you'll hear a little confluence of, of those elements in Party Hardy. And uh, we would do a shake array uh, routine with it. We would get those African shake arrays, like the horn players, of which we had five. And we would dance across the stage doing a choreographed routine with the shake arrays. It was about the funkiest thing you'd ever want to see. Yeah. It was like an African dance troupe, you know. On those uh, uh, rhythm guitar parts, John, were you coming up with those or were they written for you or how did that happen? <laughs> Nothing was written for me. No. Um, <laughs> again, again, uh, I have been blessed with like a big ear and just uh, uh, I don't I don't know what it is. I hear some music and uh, I'm blessed to be able to fit in parts almost immediately. And that's I'm not bragging. I was just telling you what I was blessed with. And uh, even to this day, I still do quite a few sessions and I work with a lot of different artists and that's one of the things that uh, gets me work you know I, I i have an ability to do that and it's still working for me to scott yes um i'm gonna make john blush now but i i've got to i've got to put this out there john has got to be the most incredible composite human being of a guitar player we have ever <laughs> heard john literally is two guys playing the guitar and we're proving it <laughs> We've had him put parts down, and two guys can't play his parts because he knows <laughs> he knows how to accompany himself with counterpoint in such a way that nobody else can do that. Nobody else can copy it. He is just a unique musician. Simply. Thank well. you, Carl. Thank you. Wow. Well deserved. Others uh, tracks on the, on this record that uh, jumped out to me were. Uh, Never get, never got enough of your love. Real nice, upbeat pop soul kind of thing. Um, make someone smile today. Sort of a gospely ballad. Yes. Um, and then material things. Another nice uh, funk track. Um, so this record, I would say, again, kind of kept that uh, forward trajectory going for you guys. Not only um, commercially, but I think also. Um, you settled more into what LTD was going to be about. Is that a fair assessment? You're so correct, Scott. Right on the on the head. And Bobby Martin would stay with you guys for a while. That was a real successful formula. That's true. What was and it? It got to the point where our music wasn't so much focused on. I don't think any one song. Uh, one of the best uh, compliments we've ever gotten was, man, back in the day, boy, we put an LTD record on the first cut and just let it play. <laughs> so that was a party record. You, you didn't have to take the record up. But you could, it would take you to a party with the ballads, the funk stuff, you know, the instrumentals and, and uh, great music. I, I'd like to say something about Bobby, if I might. Um, I believe in my heart that Bobby Martin was the reason I had to learn how to be produced, okay? Um, especially when it was material that I had written. I, I, I took my material very, very personal and I almost took offense to it when people started suggesting changes and all that sort of thing. But with Bobby, Bobby had a way of 
convincing you, well, let's just try this and let's see how it works out. And he is the reason he taught me how to be produced. And that's a learning experience. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how many other people would agree with me, but being produced correctly I think, is a learning experience. And Bobby was great at it. He was great. How, how would you describe the vibe when you guys were in the studio? Was it uh, very democratic? Did you guys uh, feel camaraderie? Were you friends outside the studio also? What was that like? Yes, we... Uh, we were family outside of the studio. We were yeah, family we were, in we and out. Yeah. In fact, we were so much of a family. <laughs> we threw a party on our first session, which you don't do. You just don't bring friends and neighbors into the studio when you're producing. But we learned the hard way, and it got out of hand, and we decided, well, we'll never do that again. But uh, we were a family, and you know, and the extended family were the spouses and and uh, relatives and children of the members. As a matter of fact, we were so much family that when we would hit one of our hometowns, we'd go to our parents' house, and right. they'd cook us dinner, and you know, the whole the whole block would turn out. Well, actually, the whole neighborhood would turn out. Right. And it, it was just great. I mean, you know, um, as a matter of fact, I remember an experience in the Caribbean where a lot of American artists went over and we standoffish and we got complimented as to how we were so down to earth and, and uh, how we were about the people. And they, they just loved us. You know, we didn't put on airs or anything of that nature. So it was great. Yeah. You know, we were basically journeyman musician. I, um, maybe a couple of us put on the mantle of star or whatever, but, you know, we were so much into music that uh, I don't think our heads grew in that way. Uh, we were we were into the music itself, and uh, which is a blessing because the other thing is kind of um, an illusion anyway. Mm -hmm. And where did it come from that the group would be such a, a positive? Um, um, well, I'm thinking that they were a positive force, but. But it was the messaging the and the lyrics was always so positive, so much about love. Uh, I mean, reflected in the name of the group. But where did that come from? And, and how did that become such a, a core part of what you guys did? I think we're all, we were all very spiritual people um, who grew up, you know, in, in churches, singing and playing. And again, we have to go back to James Davis. <laughs> he was our reverend, you know, we... We prayed before everything we did. If it was a rehearsal, a recording, a performance, and he would lead the prayer. He, he was just a very spiritual guy, and it emanated. Um, and we were all receptive to that. So I think it became a philosophy and a way of life, sort of. So it started to reflect itself in the music that we created or the music that we chose. Now, after that fourth record, you guys were pretty much, um, you know, on a level rivaling the, the top R&B groups of that time, the Earth, Wind & Fires, the Commodores, um, Isley Brothers, and so forth. What was your live uh, act like at that time? Um, was it full of, um, you know, a lot of um, stage direction, or did you guys just kind of come out and jam, the costumes, and, and who kind of guided that for you? We took the Hollywood route. Um, you know, you, you got uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, who just was hitting as we were trying to get out the gate. And they kind of set the bar. 
you know, uh, for live performances. So you just couldn't go out and jam anymore. You had to have a nice set. You had So we hired choreographers, we hired directors, we hired um, stage producers and, you know, and the technical crew and all of that. And A&M supported us to do that. But we literally went in the woodshed before every tour. We would get the big sound stage and we would rehearse like we were going to work eight hours a day, five days a week. And and we would nail those shows down. We would block out every day, just like in television or movies. You block things out and you choreograph it and you run it through and then, then you do the final runs. We had dress rehearsals. It was just the total Hollywood um, template we used to get ourselves up to the level of performance. And our shows were amazing. I have to say, it's too bad there wasn't as much video then, but they were amazing. When we played the Super Bowl with 60,000 people, I mean, and and you looked out, and when we were doing something like Concentrate on You, a love ballad, and the light, it was total darkness, and every person had their big lit. It was like the biggest <laughs> birthday cake you'd ever seen, you know. And we saw that time and time again. Um, I mean, one time they told us, okay, guys, you might, you might start a riot, so stay on the golf carts when it's taking you out to the stage. When you're coming out of the tunnel, don't jump up. Man, we got so excited. We jumped off those carts and we ran to the tunnel. We almost did start a riot because people went totally nuts to see us running across the stage, waving our towels, you know, and being so excited. But that's what crowds can do to you, and that's what bands can do to crowds. <laughs> wow. So, John, do you remember anything that stands out in particular about one performance or one experience on the road that was remarkable? Actually, the one he just got through talking about, it was at the Superdome and it was like 60,000 people. And like he said, it looked like you were looking off into space with uh, a bunch of stars when the people had their bics lit up. But the thing that stands out to me the most in that is that there was a part in the show where we were singing Love Ballad where we have a sing-along with the crowd. Well, now, as you know, as big as the Superdome is, you had to have a pretty powerful system in there to, to handle the load and everything. When the people started singing along, they actually drowned the system out. And I, that just blew my mind. It was amazing. <laughs> wow. I have one, one kind of great little spiritual story. We were playing McNichols Arena in Denver. We were doing the programmatic uh, Love to the World. And um, the sound system cut out. And it was at the part where we are vamping on heaven help us. Right there, the sound system, when all the lights in the building went out. So now we just had acoustics and we're singing heaven help us. We asked the audience to join in. And they sung that until all of the power. It was like yeah, I remember that. on the place. <laughs> I remember that. I mean, I'm telling you, we could. It was like you were floating on the stage. With I'm getting chill bumps thinking about it. But it was <laughs> quite a moment. <laughs> wow, that must have been incredible. I'm getting almost goosebumps just hearing you talk about it. <laughs> wow. So let's move on. The, the next record was Togetherness in '78. Another uh, big hit for you guys. Um, had tracks like Holding On. Um, we both deserve each other's love. Another great funk song and jam. Concentrate on You, which was a great ballad. You Fooled Me, really catchy, excellent uh, R&B track. Together Forever, another catchy funk track. Um, 
wow, this was, uh, when you talk about playing it end-to-end -end like you were before, Carl, this album is a great example of that. Uh, do you have any particular uh, memories about, about this one and some of these tracks? Uh, it was, I would say that would have been the peak of our career about during that period. Um, we loved every song on it, the production on it. I can remember sitting in the studio for every part that was going down, just marveling because we had the best strings in town. We had the best producer, the best orchestrators. We had the best musical director, you know, so everything just came out so wonderful. And it was so wonderful to be in those sessions and to play, you know, I mean, the, um, you know, I, I, it was just you would feel enveloped in the music when you played it because it was so full and and real. So it made you feel good to play it. So, I mean, we would put in a lot of hours, but it didn't mind. We never got, you know, worn out because we always had goals to attain and, and we hung in there till we did. And it was a labor of love. That's it. What about the recording process itself? Uh, if you're looking at these first, uh, going back to the Love Bell record and um, the one before this one, these three records that were at such a high level, um, how long did it take you roughly to, to record those records? And was one sort of more problematic in any way than the other? Uh, not really. We, we pretty much had the format down by that time. Uh, but to contrast that to the first album, which we finished in five days. We did know, know the music very well. And uh, even though we kind of produced it backwards, it came out sounding decent, you know, like we kind of knew what we were doing. But um, the, the actual process, we learned from Bobby Martin again. You know, he had been at Philly International and done all those great hits over there. So he had it down like a science. So um, and him being the producer, he ran the sessions and he scheduled them and contracted the players. And uh, it just all went very smooth without a hitch during that period. John, I felt like you were a little more prominent on the Togetherness record. You have some uh, writing credits. And um, did you feel like... Um, I don't know, you were, you were getting more recognition at that point or what would happen? Well, um, yeah, yeah, I did feel like I was getting more. It's not necessarily more recognition because they recognized me right off the bat. I just started participating a little bit more in the more integral parts of what was going on. Um, one thing in particular, um, holding on when love was gone, Jeffrey Osborne and I wrote that together. And it's so ironic that we were both going through divorces at the time. And that's how the record kind of, the theme of the record came up. And I'll never forget that uh, management at the time was trying to convince me that this record should not go on the record, I mean, on the album, because it was so uh, unpositive, so he said, quote, unquote. I says, well, you know, this is real life. People go through this every day. So, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't agree with you. And it went on the uh, it went on the album, and it uh, turned out to be a pretty integral part of the record. Actually, uh, a live stage show as well. So, you know, I, uh, I, you know, it happened for me, and I apparently my my uh, 
bandmates thought so too because they voted for it to go on. So there we are. So um, did did you feel Carl like uh, John was kind of uh, kind of came into his own with that record, or was it just same as always? Uh, no, John was already into his own long before we knew him. <laughs> when John was thirteen, he was into his own. He's one of those kind of individuals and players. Uh, he's just the complete player who always was. Uh, we were just a great showcase for him and, and, a, and a wonderful find because of what he brought to the group, creatively, spiritually, you know, uh, um, performance-wise. It, it was a great find. But he just needed to be let, let loose. You know, he just needed to be heard and seen and, um, and felt. And a lot of what John does is actually more felt than heard. Um, and that can't go uh, unspoken because rhythm is, as you know, king. You can play a wrong note, but don't play the wrong rhythm. People are not <laughs> forgiving. <laughs> They're not forgiving when you don't play the rhythm right. They'll forgive you for missing a note. Something else I'd like to mention about um, LTD. You know, it's funny because it was almost like it was meant to be because our careers have intertwined uh, for, for, for many, many, many years. We were on the same, same stages together, on the same shows together with different artists, but we had been knowing and seeing, well, we hadn't necessarily been knowing, but we had been seeing each other for years and years and years. Like when they were with Sam and Dave, I was with the Stair Steps and we were on plenty of stages um, or shows together. And it, it was just amazing because when we finally hooked up in California, and we started remembering all of that stuff. It was like, oh wow, yeah, I remember you. Yeah, I remember you. And it was, it was, it was just great, man. <laughs> yeah, I think we were we were with Sam and Dave. What was that? The Brevard Theater in Brooklyn. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys opened up for us. We were with Johnny Taylor at the time, and uh, the Five Fast Stair Steps opened up for Johnny Taylor. Wow. Um. um. What about uh, TV appearances? Did you guys uh, make many? I'm sure you did Soul Train. And do you remember anything particular about any of those appearances you did? On <laughs> yes, I do. I'd like to forget one of them. <laughs> 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 I, I think it might have been maybe our fifth Soul Train appearance or something. Uh, we get there, we're hanging out all day. Uh, and uh, when it comes time to go on, I'm looking around for my keys to go get my instrument out of the car, and I cannot find them anywhere. Never found the keys till after we had done the show, so I had to end up playing cowbell <laughs> on, on Soul Train. And, and I got the nickname Rudy from the Isley Brothers, of course. That's, he was a singer, and he played the cowbell, so they started tickling me, you know, and, uh, ribbing me about being Rudy because I had to play the cowbell and then it was the road manager's kid who had snatched the keys. And when his father asked him if he had seen them, he clammed up and said, no, but he threw them into a trash can. Luckily, <laughs> at the end of the night, we went through everything, found them in the bottom of this trash can. But um, that, was, that was one I'd like to forget. But we did, I think that might have been our fourth or fifth appearance. And, uh, you know, they were always very good. They're, the crowd there was wonderful. You know, we had the hot records, and they were always into the group. It was great. Well, we we did uh, um, American Bandstand, 
Um, I believe we did Midnight Special once. And, uh, the, you know, all the all the hot concert TV shows at that time, we, we made the round. So Don Kirshner's really rock concert. Yeah, yeah. And, well, let's see. Uh, no, I think it was before. I think, you know, I'd done a lot of talk show stuff, but that was with Sam and Dave. We did a Johnny Carson and all of that stuff. With LTD, it was just the popular shows at the time. In fact, it was the beginning of those shows, if you can remember. Um, Rock Concert, Midnight Special, and, and then Soul Train. That was kind of the early years of those programs. We did one program called Teen Something. Do you remember? Because there was, there was a young teen star on, and I forget who, who ended up being a big star, but it was called Teen Time or something like that. No, I remember Solid Gold. That was another one that came on. Yeah, Solid Gold. This was all around the same time. So, guys, um, Devotion came out, 79, another fantastic album. And you guys were on such a hot streak. And I think you had um, – I had it here. You had a bunch of conce- – yeah, one, two, three, four. So, Devotion was your – fourth consecutive top 10 uh, R&B album, which is, you know, quite an accomplishment. And the one after, Shine On, also top 10, five straight top 10 albums. Um, but Devotion had one-on-one, uh, Stand Up LTD, I'm sure it was a, a good concert track for you, I'm guessing, dancing, singing. And um, one of my favorite all-time ballads by the group is Stranger. So, <laughs> um what do you remember about that record and, and feel free to call it any of the particular tracks. Uh, Stranger was written by Jake Riley, the trombonist. Um, I think really a finely crafted song um, and the performance was incredible. I, I, I can't say anything but good about it. And, you know, it was probably one of our more neglected, neglected songs until we realized because people would always holler stranger stranger finally we had to include it in our show even now we will maybe couple it with a ballad but we can't get through it without doing some of stranger because it's a great sing-along it has a kind of um uh it has a wider feel than just r&b to me it's almost i could almost hear a willie nelson or somebody like that uh, you know doing that song because it's kind of covers more of a, a larger genre than just R&B. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I think Jake once told me he was thinking country and western when he wrote that song. Hmm. I, I felt it had sort of like, for lack of a better term, sort of like a haunting quality. You know? Very yeah. haunting because of yeah. the, the sing-along, which is la, 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 very nursery rhymey, but it just kind of sticks, you know, with a nice, smooth, little, simple melody, which... Uh, you know, we had to learn that along the way. We were sophisticated musicians. We tried to make things harder, not easier. But we learned <laughs> along the way that less is more. And yeah. elegance means simplicity. I think in science they call it Occam's razor. It's like the most simple way that you can explain something is the, the best way to do it. And that's elegance. So we sort of erred on the side of elegance, you know, the, the more we developed Dance and singing, I would say that that, to me, uh, was maybe a little bit of the, the sign of the times of a little bit of disco influence coming into the group. Is that something that you were cognizant of? 
Well, you know, record companies will try to, in a very subtle way, tell you what direction you should go in. And uh, they kept hinting that, hinting that. And again, Jake Riley came up with, with that. I think Jake and maybe JD. But uh, we, to be honest with you, I don't think now we, of course, wear the mantle. But at the time, we didn't quite like to be called a disco group. And that's where the music was going with that straight four bass on the bass, uh, bass drum beat and, and uh, at 120. And, of course, dancing and singing follows that format because that's what disco was calling for. And we were literally shooting for a disco hit, which uh, my advice to anybody is don't do that. Don't yeah. <laughs> Absolutely not. Be as honest as you can with your music and just go yeah. for it. Put it out. Yeah, there. I agree. The uh, the one on one that was just a real nice jazzy feel of that one, um, and um, you know the stand up LTD you mentioned uh, Earth Wind Fires we mentioned a few times just in our conversation, but it reminded me a little bit of uh, like a gratitude kind of thing like they did just like similar kind of uh, tempo and feel to, to gratitude. Is that one that ended up uh, coming out of shows and then you put it on record? Or we'll... uh, stand up was just a collaborative effort of the band. We yeah we we needed one more, and we said let's do something together. I think everybody's name is on the record, and it was just um, you know it was kind of uh, uh, um, I guess we were imploring ourselves to stand up and be ourselves. You know yeah. that's how we said it. And Feel It, too, was kind of a little disco y flavor. Feel It was uh, myself and Billy Osborne. We had collaborated on a couple of other albums. And, um, yeah, we, you know, sort of, that had a kind of popish, you know, kind of funky little thing to it. But I, it was almost, I thought, a little top 40-ish, you know. Uh, but, but, again, we tried to cover all bases. And that was kind of a medium tune that we... I was lucky enough to get uh, chosen. Shine On, again, another great one. The final run of that top uh, 10, five in a row. Uh, had You Gave Me Love, Where Did We Go Wrong, uh, get, away, get Away, Shine On, um, Don't You Know. Wow, so many great songs and a lot of songs, too. Um, was there a lot of competition in the group to decide on the song selection? And what about sequencing? Uh, well, we would talk about, we wanted a flow in all of our albums. As, as you mentioned, most of them would start off with these epic kind of things, you know, that would grab your attention. Um, and, and that was kind of our, our uh, template to, to take people on a musical journey. It wasn't just throwing a bunch of songs. So we had to make them speak to each other in a way that a person would go on a ride, you know? Yeah, constantly. Absolutely, concept. That's right. And, and what about what would make the final cut, uh, John? Was it a lot of competition? Did you throw a lot of songs out, like on something like Shine On? Or did most of the stuff you have make it into the final product? Well, there were, there were plenty of songs that didn't make it, because most of the music, in my opinion, was just, it was just fantastic. It was, it was hard making the decision. And the the 
person who would probably um, have the commanding vote would be, again, Bobby Martin, because he was such an integral, by that time, he was such an integral part of our careers and our choice in music. And this man just had a phenomenal ear like you wouldn't believe. And by that time, we had learned to trust his ear and his judgment. We didn't just go with it automatically, but we had learned to trust his judgment. And after a final uh, discussion or, or, or not argument, but, uh, you know, uh, discussion, we just went with him, you know, so, and it proved to work out for us really well. I noticed some of this record, including uh, Angela Winbush on backing vocals. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, Dick Griffey uh, is, is listed as being directed by. Um, how did you get uh, Angela? <laughs> how did Angela come to be working with LTD? And what role did Dick Griffey play? Well, we were a self-contained group, first of all. So we didn't need much from the outside. But we did from time to time, um, you know, accessorize. And Jeffrey had the type of voice where he could, of course, do all of his leads and he could do background. He could sing falsetto and you thought it was a woman. So all we needed for texture was one. We never used more than one female vocalist in the um, in the, the background parts because we wanted the male texture to be more dominant and uh, and we had Jeffrey you know who would do uh, along with Angela do background parts so it worked out we also used um, um, Jessica Cleves on uh, on a record um, friends of distinction yeah yeah, you remember her. Yeah. You remember her from uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Friends of Distinction, and Parliament Funkadelic, of course. Absolutely. Um, actually, I think she just passed recently, unfortunately. She did. She did. Yeah. Any particular tracks on this one um, that you're especially proud of? Well, you can't not not be proud of uh, Shine On. It's just I oh, think. Oh, absolutely. That, yeah, a, a wonderful song. Um, prolific ballad. Prolific, yes. And there was a song on "I Love You." What what was that title? I just love this song. I love you in the winter. I love you in the spring. L Lovers everywhere. Or Love is. Oh me. man, I love. That. Yeah, man. <laughs> it just made me feel so good. <laughs> Thank you. 